0: Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. Today's show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery, which is available today. Order it by going to russellbrand.com. It's a good book, it's out now. Go get it. Now it's time for Under the Skin. You're listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, and I'm talking to Professor David. Har- I'm assuming Professor. Yeah, you can. You-, you can drop the professor. I don't like it very much. Oh, Professor, eh? I've come up in the world, Professor David Harvey. I'll be talking to as if we were equals. Uh, that David Harvey, Professor David Harvey, is the world's leading Marxist thinker. Oh you- no, that's what it says. So I'm just, I'm just reading the script, mate. I'm just reading the script. He writes extensively on Marxist geography, social justice and the political economy and is the author of over 20 books, including 17 contradictions and the end of capitalism, rebel cities and the new imperialism. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and geography at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and has been teaching Marx's capital for almost 40 years. His new book is titled Marx Capital and the Madness of Economic Reason. Professor David Harvey, thank you very much for being our guest on Under the Skin. Thank you. You're here somewhat to promote this book, Marx, Capital and the Madness of Economic Reason. Why why have you written this book
1: now? Well, I've been involved over several years now in what I call the Marx Project, which is uh, to try to uh, explain to people what it was that Marx was talking about and to do it in terms which are simple without being simplistic it's been quite a challenge to do that because marx is kind of a bit of a hard read when you first read him but a lot of academics spend a lot of their time trying to make Marx more complicated than he already is so i'm trying to make it simpler so that people can grasp it and i've had a series of books which have come out and this is the, the the last one and it may not be the final one but it it, it, I try to put a lot of things together in this book about what the, what's going on in the three volumes of Capital, how they relate to how the three volumes relate to each other, and and how coming out of that you get a picture of capitalist society and the essence of what capital is about. What does Marx mean when he says that
0: uh, society's starting point is the what do say accumulation of commodities?
1: Well, he, he you know it's it's wealth uh, appears, and, and when Marx uses the word appears, you always got to take it as appears, and it doesn't mean it is, you know, it, it appears as if it's an immense accumulation of, you know, commodities like yachts and McMansions and, and all the rest of it. That's how the wealth appears to people. I see. So you know, he uses appears very
0: deliberately because he's saying that it's uh, a, a, yeah, visual or apparent as opposed to yeah, essential. He,
1: yeah, he's always trying to get behind the, the realm of appearance to try to find out what the reality of it is underneath them. I and that's very much what Capital is about as a book. Oh
0: really? So I suppose that must be uh, built. Uh, the platform for that must be that capitalism appears to be like something, but it is not that. No,
1: it's uh, uh, it, it appears to offer possibilities of freedom and emancipation, but actually, what it does is to imprison people. Uh, in certain ways of life uh, and certain ways of being, uh, so you're promi- made promises of, for instance, access to the American dream, uh, something like that, and uh, then you sort of told, well, you should borrow hundred thousand dollars to buy a house, and then you're pinned in to pay off that hundred thousand dollars for the next, uh, you know, thirty years. When was years. that capital written? And it was written in stages, you know, during the 1850s, 1860s, and, of course, we're in the 150th anniversary right now of the publication of Volume 1 of Capital. Volume 2 and 3 were never published.
0: What was happening with capitalism a- 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 and industrialization for Marx to write Das Capital then? And I suppose I'm asking, was the book prophetic? Uh,
1: well, it was one of, one of the things that was, was really stunning of that period was the encounter people had with the emergence of the factory system. I mean, people were familiar with uh, artisanal forms of labor and workshops and things like that. But when they went from the continent, and Engels has a great description of this, like he went from Germany, where he was used to these sort of artisanal systems, and he gets to Manchester, and he says, this is incomprehensible, this huge factory with all these people there, and this is incredible. So in some ways, Marx is the first great theorist, of industrial capitalism, first person really to grapple with what it was about. And Engels helped him on that.
0: I see. Artisanal means like people just doing little craft things yeah, in small yeah, groups.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, and, and and the craftspeople were in charge of their own means of production. You know, they had their own skills and things like that and they had a certain kind of power because of those skills. But they get de-skilled and pushed into a factory where they become essentially dominated by, by this capitalist industrial system.
0: Yes, and th- th- that obviously has a profound impact on an individual and a, yeah. as well as
1: but then, but then, yeah, but then Marx kind of not only talking about what what has happened, he's talking about what the future of the system is going to look like. And he sees that capitalism, by definition, is going to be about technological change, because one of the things that's crucial to the capitalist is increasing the productivity of labor. So you want more machines, more, you know, bigger all forms of organization. Uh, also, since uh, capitalism is about profit making, the system has to expand. So it has to grow and it has to be relevant evolutionary in, relationships, in relationship to its uh, technological and organisational form. And so Marx is trying to talk about the fu- our future as well as our past. That's brilliant. So what I've already understood
0: in a few minutes of conversation there is because capitalism has essentially built into it its own destruction and our own destruction because it's built on expansion and profit and and as you said must have as its creed continual technological advancement and efficiency it's ultimately destructive so its essence must always be concealed so it must always appear to be something that it's not because yeah. otherwise people will go hold on a minute this is going to ruin us
1: no basically I mean look uh, I've been around a long time and I remember in the 1960s uh, there were all these people who were saying we've got to deal with global poverty how do we deal with capitalist developments the answer well it didn't work it made things worse Mm. so I heard the same story in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and we hear it today we have got all this poverty around and the, the way to do it is to unleash the market and get capital to do it and actually what capital does is it produces inequality
0: even though the the time that Das Capital was written it would have been relatively early in capitalism's journey Yep. Because it's just immediately post industrialization. So that's a particular type of capitalism, isn't it, that's facilitated by industrialization? Or it, what was capitalism prior to industrialization? Well,
1: well, two things to say about that. I mean, when Marx was writing, capital as, a, as, a, as an economic system dominated only one in very small corner of the world. I mean, it was basically Britain, some parts of Western Europe and maybe eastern United States, and that was it. That was, that was if you like, the geographical terrain within which the capital accumulation process was operating now it's global it's happening in China it's happening in Africa it's uh, it's happening in India and Indonesia so we're no longer sort of talking about uh, something that's c- occurring at a little corner of the world we're talking about something that has grown to the point where it's now become completely global so that would be the first point to make. The second thing is that in terms of its temporality, one of the things that happens is in competition, speed up becomes very important. If I can turn over my capital faster than you, I get the profit and you don't. So there's an incredible you know, incentive under capitalism to move things faster. So we get this speed up going on and uh, the speed up of technological change and the speed up of, of the turnover time of capital and the obsolescence time. I mean, how many new kinds of t- phones have you had in the last 10 or 15 years? I mean, this is a classic. Capital moves into those areas where it can actually turn over times as fast as it can. Brilliant. And this creates a great deal of stress in people's lives. Yes. They're actually keeping up with the speed of, of everything. It's kind of crazy. It's too much
0: and it's unnatural and it has no marker but its own. It's no. not It's not indigenous. It's not a natural marker that, no. that, that marks out its time, its minutes, its seconds, no. but one that's only right. to preserve. To inspire cons- consumers Yeah, you
1: know, capital came out with a definition of, of a civilized society, which is kind of one where workers do what they're supposed to do. And it always talked about you know pre-capitalist societies as being uncivilized. And there are some studies of those societies and say the working day for many of those societies was something like four hours. Brilliant. Wouldn't That'll you live like to? Trouble. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you hours. like to live four hours a day and then really the rest of the day you bored. did what the hell you like? Freedom, actually, freedom, free time is one of the uh, one of the great emancipatory possibilities that exists within capitalism. We have all of these equipment which is about, you know, making things go faster, but are people having more free time? The answer is most people feel more pressed on their yes. time now than ever before. Stress is a necessary component. I can see how like the
0: inducing a state of fear is a requirement for that system yeah. to function and to continually speed yeah. and how it utilizes biology and uh, and psychology. To perpetuate a sort of this, sort of, it's a kind of yeah. terrorism of the mind.
1: Yeah. And it connects also to, you know, Marx talks a lot about the, the problems of uh, realization and that uh, capitalists need to sell their product. And in order to sell their product, there has to be a want, need, and desire for commodities. So actually the history of capitalism has been about the creation of wants, needs and desires to the point where we've got now where it's kind of, you know, if we have kind of crazy pressures on us to yeah. to sort of change our culture, change our thinking, change our wants, needs and desires.
0: Change our phones. I mean the example that you've already used yeah, of obsolescence right. is that, that you know, when right. uh, is that uh, I, 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 I've tried to buy less phones but however many phones I've bought, it's more phones
1: than I needed. Yes, I absolutely. only needed one. Absolutely. I mean I well, one of the things I kind of say in, in some of my lectures, is I said, you know, I'm still using my grandmother's knives and forks. If capital produced things that lasted 100, 150 years, it would have gone out of business a long time ago. Yeah. So it needs to produce things that don't last and and therefore, it needs to produce new fields of wants, needs, and desires. And, you know, so this is something that's a tremendous kind of pressure which connects to what capitalist growth is about.
0: It's antithetical to our humanity, it's a, a, a destructive idea. It's funny, isn't it, when you hear, like, sort of like a brilliant one could say, intellectual such as Sam Harris talking about the uh, sort of the cruelty and malevolence of an ideology such as you know islam because it can be used to resource in this is their argument uh, extremism and terrorism and yet the most obvious dominant all-encompassing ideology that creates such malevolence so antithetical to our spirit yeah, and our yeah. way of being passes other than outside academia uh, certainly it's uh, seldom described as being an attack on our sort of essential humanity.
1: But I think that uh, that's how we have to describe it. And that's one of the brilliant things that comes out of reading Capital, is you see, you know, what appears to be a liberatory force turns out to be a force of domination, which has in it this, all of these repressive uh, aspects to, to daily life. And that's, that's, to me, is one of the big lessons that comes from reading a text like Capital.
0: Given your stated objective of uh, uh, making capital more accessible, perhaps we'll start this conversation with uh, it, it, perhaps illuminating a few simple terms and ideas. So I'll go uh, through these questions. Okay. Firstly, why are you not calling it dash
1: capital like how you're supposed to? Um, Well, you know, I'm using the English translation, so I use the (laughs) English language to talk about it it There there are some problems about the translation, uh, obviously, but uh, that's what I'm working from Because I suppose because
0: of that brief, to simplify Firstly, why is this book so important? I mean Capital, (laughs) although your book I think is important as well I'm not trying to belittle your book. So why is Capital an, why is it an important book? What's in there that's relevant to people today in 2017? After we have endured the idea, the negative stories about communism, like why is this? why is Capital an important well, thing for us to understand well, now? First
1: off, you know, Capital as a book is not about communism. Oh, it's uh, it's about it's a critique of capitalism. And it's not even a critique of capitalism in every respect it's a it's a critique of how what I would call the engine of capitalist development uh works uh how the laws of accumulation of capital work' cause capitalism expansionary system is constantly expanding and how does it expand and what kind of stresses does that do that does that create amongst working people what kind of stresses in relationship to cultural evolution what kind of stresses in relationship to environmental questions and and, and the like and we're surrounded obviously with all of those questions about the environment about cultural preservation about uh, even the definition of what, what it is it means to be a human being. We're having a big debate about that in the United States right now because everybody looks at Trump and says, is that the future of what humanity is going to look like? And the answer of many people is no, we've got to think of something really different. So, So with all of those questions around... Uh, You need to know what it is that is driving capitalism uh, to do the kinds of things it does in relationship to exploitation of the environment, social inequality, cultural transformations, the production of new wants, needs and desires, Mm. all of those sorts of things. We need to have a theory of that. And Marx is the first person really to come to terms with what that theory might look like.
0: In the 1850s, Marx was able to identify in this critique of capitalism what likely trends and what the result of capitalism would be. Even though this is like, you know, 150 years ago, and that's one of the reasons you've written the book, isn't it? Even at 150 years ago, is it, it was able to predict. What was it about capitalism then that made it evident that this economic system would fail? Oh,
1: well, first, first first, that it has to grow. Right. It has to grow at uh, what we call a compound rate, which is kind of a you know, 3% per year is a small amount of of new commodities and so on back in 1850 but by the time you get to 2000 it's a huge amount of new commodities so Mm. so it's got to grow and at some point or other, it's going to hit limits to that growth
0: so in the end that's quite a simple observation that Marx made then because if you change the word capitalism to the word elephant then he's it, like, like going, hold on a minute, if this elephant has to continue to grow, it's going yes. to fill the room and kill us all. Yes. Like you just right. pointed
1: out that. Right. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it's a growth machine. And it has to grow because that's the only way in which you can assure profitability. Profit is an excess. Yes. And you have to produce the excess in order for capital to survive. And then you have to use that excess to produce more excess. So it's, it's it, you know, endless accumulation is one of the rules of the game. It's
0: necessarily and essentially impractical. It's not about fulfilling a practical need, it's about creating needs that are not there in order that it might continue to have compound growth. So how come that that observation was made in 1850? How come everyone didn't go, oh yeah, that's a good point. Right, stop this capitalism then. (laughs)
1: Well, because there was plenty of room to expand back in 1850. I mean, the rest of the world was there, and of course we had colonialism, we had imperialism, we had all of the expansions around the world. So there's plenty of room for that growth to occur. Uh, it was a, what I call, uh, you know, capital is getting into what I call a spatial fix a lot of the time, which is what what capital would do is get a super amount of commodities uh, and 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 capacity in Britain, so it wouldn't know what to do with it. So uh, the British would lend to Argentina to build railroads, and the railroads would be produced in Britain. So yeah, you know, so. Argentina gets caught into the kind of the circulation of capital, so so there were plenty of places like that for capital to grow into. But yeah. now there's no place left. I mean, maybe Africa still is not completely gone, but pretty much everywhere in the world has been caught into it right now. So growth from here on out is not feasible when it was feasible back in 1850.
0: Right. So even if someone had said, "Hold on a minute! If we have to, in- if we have to indefinitely grow this ideology, it will necessarily bring about a destruction,"
1: and the response
0: to that was. That'll be ages.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. no one was bothered. Yeah. Well, you know, back then, uh, you know, United States was only just beginning, mm. and and you had the whole United States continent to sort of and the North American continent to to occupy.
0: Would I be right then in asking David, and beyond right, and more importantly than right, bloody clever in asking that uh, that capitalism? Uh, is sourced from imperialism and colonialism. It's an economic model that fits the preceding ideology, which had been a, a rather more obviously inethical uh, system of domination.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, capital has always been about uh, geographical expansion. Now, whether you call it colonialism or you call it imperialism, I actually prefer to call it uneven geographical development because uh, sometimes imperialism makes is it, too, too simple a term. Oh, because cause right now, if you look at the way in which commodities are made, you know, one piece is made in Taiwan, one piece is made in South Korea, another piece is made in Mexico, and then it's all put together in the United States, and you say, where is capital in all of this? So right now, it's a much more complicated kind of story. So i kind of saying, well, where, where, is, where is all this work going on, uh, which is producing the commodities that get on our table? And one of the th- questions I always like to start my geography classes off with was questions of, where does your breakfast come from and it was kind of really interesting. People kind of go, "Oh, I never thought about it." And they kind of say, "Well, it comes from the supermarket." And you go, "No, no, no! I want to feel where, the, where all the stuff comes from." And, and after about three weeks of asking the same question, people would say things like, "I didn't have breakfast this morning." <laughs> I no, stopped having it. No, I stopped, stopped having, having breakfast. breakfast. I, this question? No, 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 I don't like this question I'm about having my breakfast. No, <laughs> I'm not hungry. I drank anymore.
0: some water out of a puddle <laughs> yes. on the way here. Ah, but that rain? <laughs> yes. Where did that cloud? Uh, cloud accumulate? Yeah. And why was that cloud there? I'm not coming to your classes anymore. <laughs> it's too hard. Yes, no, that's exactly right. <laughs>
1: (laughs) So I got a lot of dropouts from my geography class because I kept asking that question.
0: (laughs) But in a way, uh, capitalism is a vehicle for a particular type of mentality, which is kind of about what?
1: Well, it's, um, you know, the the famous kind of statement, the greed is good. Uh Uh, There's that kind of uh, side to it. But, But actually the mentality now has shifted a bit because I think a lot of capitalism... Is, is about a complicated relationship with the debtors. And I, one of the things that I'm talking about in this last book a lot is the way in which the future has got foreclosed by debt. That debt is a claim on future labor, and it's a claim on your future labor. Right. And and if you're heavily in debt, you've got to pay it off. Yes. So the incentive you have right now is not to kind of uh, it's a, it's getting rid of the debt. It's a drag, got.
0: isn't it? I'm supposed to be rich, and I'm enslaved.
1: Yeah. Well, this is exactly this is exactly right. That 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 it's about foreclosure, and it's about it's about n- not emancipating you at all. It's about imprisoning you. In a network of uh, debt relations, which have become very different. And that's why, you know, student debt. I mean, in the states now, we've got this horrible amount of student debt, which really forecloses the future for people for, in remarkable ways.
0: If you can remove morality from uh, the lens of analysis, it's sort of ingenious in its mendacity oh. in the number of ways in which it's dominating.
1: Yeah. and um, By the way, Marx does not make a moral argument. I mean, oh. No, it's not a really essentially a moral argument. It's, it's about uh, the inevitability of mendacity. <laughs>
0: You know, oh, bloody hell! Cool. Hey, so like, what bearing might like that? This is still the simple bit of the podcast uh, you know, for, for for me, and one imagines you. But that, what is the difference between socialism, Marxism, and communism? Is there a quick way of doing that?
1: Well, socialism, I think, is generally spoken of as uh, a transitional uh, system in which uh, capitalism is put under sufficient constraints so that you have social democracy and it's, you know, and I think traditionally it was seen as a stepping stone to full communism, where, which would lead to the abolition of the class relation between capital and labor, and uh, the abolition of class privilege, and eventually, of course, the abolition of the capitalist state apparatus. So communism is seen as something, a further stage going beyond, uh, whereas under socialism, elements of the... Uh, capitalism would still exist, the market system would still be there, money of the sort that we use and accumulate would still be there, but under, social, under communism a lot of that would then uh, disappear. Marxism, uh, for me anyway, is, is a mode of analysis that is a way of thinking, which is a critical way of thinking and, and it, it says to you when you've, when you've got some sort of situation and you want to try to understand what the hell is happening, you don't get deceived by surface appearances. You don't get deceived by ideological kind of bluster. You, get, you, you, you do an analysis and for yourself and you come up with an understanding of what's really going on here and when you understand what's really going on here, you can then act uh, against what is really happening in a, in a deep way rather than simply deal with surface symptoms.
0: I see subcutaneous analysis not just it, the yeah. observation yeah. of yeah. symptoms because right. when you observe the symptoms you're necessarily confined by right. the argument right. of the other
1: yeah one of the things mark said was if 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 uh, you know if everything was as it seemed to be on the surface there would be no need for science <laughs> so we look at we look at the sun and it looks like the sun's going around the earth but we find out well it isn't you know that it's, it's the earth rotating so that's another this podcast. is write <laughs> <this> r- <is. laughs> <Like> that down <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, so. That's what that's what Marx means by appearance, uh, yes. and, and and the reality behind it. So it's uh, and and you know most scientists I think would recognise there's a difference between symptoms and you know what the underlying cause is. And most medical practitioners would would recognise that difference. And Marx is trying to do a kind of constantly trying to do a forensic kind of uh, inspection of a capitalist system to find out what these symptoms which you see on the surface like increasing inequality where where those symptoms uh, are coming from in terms of what's producing them.
0: Yes, I see. Um, may I ask when uh, like recently we spoke to Al Gore, we spoke to Al Gore about climate change. Al Gore uh, like talking to us about like how, you know, in a sense I suppose he's a uh, raison d'etre and explicit mission which seems to have uh, some nobility about it is to galvanize and enthuse people about being sort of responsible. But when I was talking to Al Gore, I kept Thinking and in fact saying, yeah, but hold on I mean, a minute. If you need that to stop, can't you? There's and there got to be sort of some stern and, and definitive regulation of that. Otherwise, it will just carry on. Like in, in this case, reg, like defiant and absolute regulation of energy companies, certain kinds of trade, certain kinds of labour. So in in capital. Is it dealing with like saying, well, there's no point just asking people to, you know, th- th- turn the tap off while they clean their teeth. It's much more important to say, well, you can't have that amount of profit. You can't operate in that way. Is that what is that? Crit- does that critique reach those kinds of conclusions? That, that's
1: a, that's a very good uh, point. I mean, uh, w- w- my view of uh, Al Gore is that he thinks that you can actually solve the climate change problem within the parameters of a capitalist system, mm. and that he doesn't want to you know, do away with capitalism. He he's trying to protect capitalism from the consequences of climate change. Yeah. Whereas I take the view that uh, the main producer of climate change is, of course, the driving force of capital accumulation. And until you've dealt with the driving force of capital accumulation, you're going to get all these promises about, you know, new technologies which are going to solve the problem and and so on. Uh, but you're not going to get a fundamental kind of a solution without challenging capital itself.
0: So it's kind of futile, isn't it? And it's sort of, sort of using the means of a kind of a contemporary consumer society in that it's about your individual choice and you should individually recycle and individually do make yes, these kind of choices. Right. Um, there's a thing I'm very interested in, and I keep asking people about it and they don't know, so I'll ask you. There's this thing I read Gandhi said that he went, this is him, There's no point us kicking out the British and then us just doing their job for them. What India is, is a country of 70,000 villages that's built on craft economies where everybody works all the time. We have to focus less on mass production and think instead of production for the masses. And to do this, we're going to have to break our spell with commodification. As long as people are thinking we've got to get more and more stuff, we're going to be in trouble. Now, that is where it starts to interface with the individual. But like this thing he said about 70,000 village, each one autonomous, independent and trading only in excess and being where possible self-sufficient. What's he saying there, Gandhi? Is, he, is that coming well, from... Well,
1: it, it, it's, it's a utopian vision in some ways, and I'm not against utopian visions. You well, be need a that bit out of thing. order if you were. Yeah, right. I hate so, utopia. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, I, I know. I kind of I like a little bit of utopianism. Yeah, it's once kind in of a while, a, every uh, half hour. No, I love it. I don't, I don't entirely lie, rely on it. And, and I think that, that, that what, what Gandhi's saying is that there is a way of organising production and consumption which is radically different from that which is given by the industrialisation model. And he was faced with uh, you know, Nehru and developmentalism, which was to bring in factories and solve the problem that way. And uh, Gandhi saying, "No, there's another kind of solution." Where I think there's a there's a problem w- with that is in a situation of very strong population change and population growth. Yeah, the seventy thousand villages, well, but they're growing, and and, uh, uh, they're, and there are other issues which arise like. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you deal with local famines under circumstances of that kind? I mean, if you get crop failures amongst, say, 20,000 villages in a certain part, then how, how do you support uh, what happens there? So the, his assumption is that there'll never be a crop failure, whereas historically there are crop failures because of climate issues and other malpractices and things like that so you need to have uh, an organization that can deal with the with the possibility of crop failures and 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 can redistribute uh, wealth between the villages when it's when it's really necessary and the other difficulty is when they're independent and autonomous villages some of the villages will start to get very affluent and very rich and some of them will get very poor what are you going to do about the inequalities of incomes between different villages so Gandhi didn't Think about uh, those those sorts of things, and I and I think you have to think about a form of organisation that will put all those village economies together. So uh, you believe that like
0: a, a anarcho syndicalism. It is, I suppose, a version of what Gandhi was talking about. Uh,
1: you could go to anarcho syndicalism from from what he's talking about. I don't think he would want no. that at all. But 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 you could move in that direction. And of course, there's a lot of interest these days in in solidarity economies and autonomous uh, development in this place. And uh, you know, and there's a, a great faith in autonomy. Uh, that somehow or other autonomy is going to be the solution. And my answer to that is I think autonomy is a good thing when you know what you're doing with it, but it's not the solution because if you don't have relations between autonomous groups, you're going to get a great deal of inequality. You're going to get the famine problem. You're going to get all sorts of issues of this kind uh, which have to be solved by, by integrating uh, local economies with each other in such a way that they can mutually support each other in times of difficulty.
0: And so, there's a, so presumably what you're arguing for, and, and, and what capital is arguing for, is that the, the the role of the state that the state has to have a benevolent and redistributive role, not well, that capitalism Well, the, have, world well world
1: put world it world. this way: there have to be mechanisms of of, of redistribution and, and and the like, and and mutual support. And that has to be organized. Now, when you use the term state, we often think about the capitalist state. And I don't like the capitalist state. But we do need a form of governments and governmental interventions. And I like some of these things where they talk about... You know, Murray Bookchin, for example, had this idea about municipal socialism and, and, and local socialism. That is, you'd have autonomous uh, yeah. assemblies, but then there would be a super assembly that would would start to deal with the relations between. Yeah. And, and then you'd have a super, super assembly in which, uh, you know, what's happening in, uh, say, North America gets connected with what's happening in South Africa and, and issues like climate change are addressed. Because you need a, a global organisation to deal with the climate change problem. It's not going to be dealt with simply by, you know, everybody changing behaviour, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, so you need so you need some form of, of governmental structure of coordination. Uh, and yeah. I and I think uh, uh, the autonomy argument is is powerful up to a point, but it needs to go much further. When I say that, then people say, oh, well, you're in favor of the capitalist state, and you just want to give state power, and we know the state is a disaster. And yes, well, the current state is a disaster. It's an instrument of capitalist domination, huh. and more so I think now than it was even in the 19th century. And we see it being militarized so it can suppress social opposition and social movements. And, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm really against the, the kind of capitalist state but but that doesn't mean i'm against some sort of form of government uh, 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 that can deal with these much broader global kind of problems
0: how would you how would we ever arrive at that how would there how would we have a form of state that was benevolent and acting in the interests of its population and, and can you now answer a question you must be continually called upon to answer? That where you know, like, I'm glad that you did this distinctions between socialism, Marxism, and communism. You know, how do you address the
1: great failures of communism in the last century? Well, first off, uh, I don't think uh, necessarily that communism was a great failure. Uh, that's you know a, I, mean, that...
0: I mean, like all the you know Stalinist gulags. <coughs> yes, well,
1: yeah, well, yeah. There, there were you know some very very bad parts of that history. Uh, on the other hand, I think what was interesting is after the collapse of the Soviet Union, life expectancy in the Soviet Union went down in Russia. Yeah, you know, enormously. A lot of people there suddenly found all their rights had disappeared. I mean, so so I think we we are wrong to kind of say everything that the communists did was 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 terrible.
0: You think that mostly I've been propagandized, like that my perception of what happened in the communist yeah. Soviet Union over yeah. that century has been editorialised yeah. and I don't really understand it because it does, I mean, because I don't know
1: only yeah, look, information. look, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't want to get in a situation of saying everything was great and wonderful and uh, no criticism but if you look at a place like Cuba and you look at healthcare delivery in Cuba it's fantastic. Yeah, you look good at vibe at as well Education, uh, you know and, and so there's some very good things there There clearly are some good things um, but like
0: I think, uh, uh, don't we have to address the, some of the things that seem, like I saw this good thing on the telly once where the woman that was doing the documentary said it seems that communism, Soviet communism, uh, unconsciously or inadvertently mimicked the the social structure that had immediately preceded it of czarism in that in spite of its declared objectives yeah. it had hierarchical yeah. structures and yeah. yeah. did lead to a, a, oppression right. and persecution right. of a sort. Of
1: yeah, no, I mean, I, mean I, I don't I don't deny a lot, a lot of that, but I do uh, think that uh, we we have to you know give uh, credibility to some of the things that happened under communism. The other thing I have to say is this. Uh, The reason that most of us have the standard of living we, we have today is because of the communist threat. If the communist threat had not been there after 1945, uh, you know, we wouldn't have had uh, the delivery of the welfare state such as it was and all those kinds of mm-hmm. things, which allow us uh, increasing life expectancy. And it's interesting that over the last few years, life expectancy has been going down in some of the major capitalist countries, Britain, for example. Cameron, I think, is the first prime minister to leave with a lower life expectancy than when he came in.
0: Well, I think his has gone up. You should see the armed guards outside his house. Yes. Nothing's happening to that, geezer. Let me tell you, there's old Bill crawling around everywhere. And there's an ambulance on duty. I can not know what's happened to everyone else in Ladbroke Grove. They must be terrified. All the old Bill are outside one house. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but look, David... Uh, this is the thing, you know, because I basically my position, amorphous though it may be, and insubstantiated as it will continue to be, is this that we need radical change? Yes, and uh, and part of that does seem to be the dismantling of the capitalist state and yes. a new system based yes. on sharing. But yes. when we even appear to have an allegiance to uh, like uh, like anything, uh, an umbrella under which, you know, Stalinism or uh, like you know me, I'd love a bit of Che Guevara, but you can't uh, try saying that in Miami. People, are, the kickback's pretty fierce. You know, like because like because of the flaws, and because of, uh, you know, like, you know, like we've been, I grew up in the 80s and Cold War, which is, you know, obviously a, a tale of the two sides. Like, so I, like I've, I find it very hard to unpick that. And, and, and anything that seems revivalist or nostalgic about a communism that's already happened, yeah. I think people are like, no, thanks, mate. Oh, I, know, suits, I, when, I, I don't want to
1: do that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I've been interested in some of these uh, programs that, for example, uh, in, in northern Syria, the, the Kurds have reorganized things along a kind of uh, assembly structures, uh, partly inspired by uh, an alternative notion of democracy. I think that right now uh, some of the progressive mayors in Spain are trying to come up with a way of Creating more democratic uh, assembly structures. So, I think there's a lot of experimentation that needs to be done on things like that. Mm. I think the big problem with communism was they had a, what I call a single bullet theory of social change, which was uh, put in classic Marxist terms that the productive forces, that is, if you could command production, then you'd really, the rest of society would take care of everything in a a proper kind of way. I think we have to work on on a whole range of different uh, issues, uh, including sort of culture in relation to nature. Mm-hmm. We have to deal with a problem right now which is fundamental to me, which is what I would call global alienation. The alienation of populations politically, from their jobs, from their daily life possibilities. And, and you've got alienated populations all over the world who then do crazy things sometimes, you know. They can be passive for a while and then something happens and you get these sort of seemingly irrational outbreaks of, uh, of craziness and they are elect Donald Trump and do things like that. So I think alienation is one of the big, big issues. And when you have populations that are alienated, then, then you can't address it by sort of saying, oh, vote communist. Because uh, they're as, they're as people are as, as alienated from political parties like, like the communist parties and so on as they are from anything else. So it's hard then to rebuild some sort of uh, trust with alienated populations. And that's a lot of uh, political work to do. And, and I think there's an interesting distinction uh, for me between uh, what might be called uh, social media as a form of communication and social media leading to forms of organization. Mm. The f- communicative forms are very good. The organizational forms are very bad right now. And yes. we've really got to think about how to, how to construct organizational forms. And I agree with you entirely. I'm not nostalgic about, you know, what the communists did, except that, you know, when it comes to healthcare care and, and, and that kind of thing, I'd say, well, we should look at how the Cuba did it and, and education we should look at how the Cubans yes, did
0: it I understand, you're enamoured by the beauty of the original idea, the veracity yes. of the crit- critique and the pos- possibility of components of it you
1: said that great. Can somebody take that down? Looks <laughs> like so that's what I'm interested it's in because been, uh, I like it. It. It's all been recorded. It's all been
0: recorded. <laughs> okay. Thank you though for the endorsement. That's going on the poster. <laughs> you said that great. I'm going to give that in as a uh, as my PhD. I'm not doing a PhD. I'm doing the other one that begins with M. <laughs> I'm really going to have to start listening in those lectures. Um, uh, that is yes that you like that and. Uh, uh, the compliment, I'm so ego-led. That if someone's nice to me, it takes me about an hour to recover <laughs> from my graces because I've been given a compliment. Let's just take a while to reflect on the compliment and uh, then we'll move on with the interview. Now, my point is is that w- that's, uh, what's needed is something that whilst it may be derived from a capital, capital, a book that I've only just learned to say correctly and now you've making me undo it, uh, like uh, that, I suppose, David, the thing that sort of, uh, that, interests me the reason i'm doing this podcast is i sense that change is possible i sense that we are being lied to i i can feel the 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 argument that you made about alienation it's so it's so in evidence um and I, i went to that cuba when i was quite young 22 and it was magnificent i was there of all things to record a chewing gum commercial The most vacuous product imaginable, not even nutrition, just the act of mastication as a ritual and an idea while people starve. And while there, luckily, I'm a drug addict. So that was then I'm clean now. So that means that wherever I go, I have to go and find the people that know where the drugs are. So that means you have to get off the rails. You have to go down the rabbit hole. So I found myself in these things called barrios in Havana. And I liked it. I liked the people and I liked the uh, murals and there was a sense of joy and glory and potentiality and cars from the 50s. Why not? And streets painted by people and this presence of people and people's creativity. And as you say, the absence of that alienation that comes when you don't participate in your city, when you don't participate in your culture, when you know you have no power, when you know you have no meaning, how lost you feel. I felt something different then, but I was on drugs. So, you know, all of my experiences were being filtered through drugs. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, and that's before I knew that they had bloody good dental care, you know, like, you know, all of that. But what I feel like when we're posing uh, an idea to people now, I I think what like in there, what what did uh, Lenin, Trotsky, the Bolsheviks, etc. take from that book, Capital? and use in the the revolution in communism and how did it become you know like the the, the failure that it became even if you take as failure the, the fall of the berlin wall the end of the soviet union and what's happening in russia now
1: yeah See that—that's a question I—I I often get asked, and I back away from. I uh. kind of say, I kind of say, look, uh, you know, Lenin and Trotsky and Bakari and all these people—they read Capital and they took certain things from them and they did certain things from them. Our job right now is to read Capital and find out what we want to do with it.
0: What shall we do?
1: Yeah. Well. What, first off, First off, you've got to learn how to read it, you know, and 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 that is not. Initially, an easy thing. And that's why I hope some of the things I write help people get into it. That's and, going to be
0: vital because no one's and, going to and, read
1: it. You're going to have to do that. That's really important. Yeah, and 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 you know, and I have these things on the web where you can do the, you can. Uh, there's a course on Marxist Capital, Volume One and Volume Two, on the web. You know, and you can take it on the web. Mm. Um, so so yeah, open it up. But in the process make sure that we understand what it is that 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 Marx is really teaching us about uh, the nature of this system and that, you know that comes back to the it's not what it appears to be on the surface can we develop a way of critique so that i want to i want to educate people if i can not necessarily to regurgitate Marx because that's not the point but to use his mode of analysis so that you can start to see okay These populations are alienated. Why are they alienated? Where does the alienation come from? What's it got to do with the nature of the labor process? Why is the labor process the way it is these days? Why did capitalist technology decide that it wanted a labor process which disempowered the laborer? Yeah, why is, why is that there? Yeah. Why is it, as and, and, and Marx has this wonderful thing where he starts off one of his chapters and he kind of said, John Stuart Mill has this problem. He says, look, we have all this labour-saving machinery right now and you would have thought this labour-saving machinery would lighten the load of labour. And John Stuart said, but the funny thing is, is it seems that it doesn't, that actually it makes a lot of the labourer worse. And Marx says, well, of course it does, because the purpose of the machinery is not to lighten the load of labour, it's to extract more value and more surplus value and more profit from the labourer. So, of course, if the machine can help you do that, then that's what it does. Yes. So this is what. So this gives you an understanding of capitalist technology which evaded John Stuart Mill, but which Marx sees very clearly yes. and we see very clearly and say, actually, the purpose of technological change. Yeah, well, I mean, there are all kinds of purposes, but with military and all the rest of it in there, but one of the big purposes of it is to disempower the labourer. Yes. Yes. And, and when the labourer is disempowered, guess what? They become alienated. Yes. Guess what? They start behaving in an alienated way, you know. I mean, when you've got these things sort of going on, you're kind of saying, "Well, these are the kinds of insights that come out of reading Marx's Capital," and you kind of go, "Wow, you know, once I've got that insight, I can't look at any discussion of technological change and imagine it's got some socialist utopia attached to it, as you know some of the people writing these days do. The the artificial intelligence is the new you know socialist utopia." You know, well, you see what happens. Something oh, like Uber, that. Uber, Uber starts as a kind of sharing economy, and the next thing you know, it's become capitalised, and mm-hmm. somebody's become a billionaire out of it. You've got to admire the malleability of the system. It is good, isn't it? I mean, I'm
0: not saying capitalism is good morally, ethically, uh, or spiritually. Oh, it's slick. It's slick. It's very very adaptable. Anything. It can take anything. Like, my understanding of it is primarily of the way that it interacts with culture and creativity, and how you can see mimicked in its narrative the uh, uh, essential flaw, i.e., for example, take. Hip-hop, which begins as sort of very defiant, then goes for a stage of being utopian and beautiful, and then it becomes commodified, becomes clearly a product, and to some degree about products, and about commerce, and about acquisition and about like it's the ideology is so endemic so all-encompassing that it becomes invisible so you say that part of capitalism's dna is its own concealment its own yes. concealment is a, it's a primary function once it's concealed itself it can continue now what i think is you know when people talk about you know the system and the flaws of the system who like it obviously when you say you know about technology's role it's technology you know john stuart mills all baffled by it but marx goes no 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 it's doing its job perfectly or well, is that not true of bureaucracy and, and systems of control? For someone, this system, for some people, for some groups, some institution, this system is brilliant. It's working 100% right. effectively. Right. Oh yeah, but what about climate change? No problem. What about alienation, inequality, riots, death, murder, dec- decimation? No problem. So who is this strata for whom this system is beneficial? Who are they? How do we influence, control, diminish, limit, oppose them?
1: That's the subject of your PhD. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you've got to do. That's That's what you've got to sort out. No, I mean I can give some preliminary sort of answers to those questions. Write this down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean it's an. I mean you're in a great position to 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 take that sort of stuff on. Am I? Big time. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know you're you're close. I mean it's very important when you're doing a PhD to 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 be in love with the matter you're doing. You know, because otherwise Russell uh, Brand. Myself by me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which, is, which is fine, which is what it should be about in some ways. So I, I think it, it's, uh, but yeah, who who benefits? Well, mm. you can see who, who, who extracts wealth from it. I mean, how, how, right. how wealth gets, gets, you know, how Jeff Bezos gets his money and how he? he's the guy who runs Amazon. Right. And, and, Amazon. and. Got it. Bloody good, though, aren't they, Amazon? But they're, they're part of the problem.
0: They won't yeah. pay any bloody tax. They're too bloody big. They're controlling yeah. everything. Yeah. So that
1: would have to go. And, and how Google and, and all these other monopolies are kind of being set up. So they've been set up in such a way. And, 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 and actually, you know, I, I use, use them, you know. Yeah, how can we use not? Them. we have to not? use them. At the same time, uh, value is being extracted from us. A kind of rent is being taken away from us, mm. uh, and 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 so we've got these 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 systems now, which 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 you know, and and I think particularly in the cultural field and so on, the the, the forms of exploitation and appropriation are, are 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 becoming you know pretty 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 chronic. I mean, they've been that way for quite a while, but it seems to me. Right now, particularly given the problems that I mentioned earlier, that capital is running out of places to go and new things to do. Just geographically? Geographically. Uh, and, and actually, it's increasingly relying upon, you know, culture, to the production and, 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 and commodification of culture. What do you mean by that, the commodification of culture? Well, well for, for example, if, if, if we want to have a short turnover time or something, then, then a spectacle is instantaneously consumed. It's gone. It's not like my grandmother's knives and forks. It doesn't last 150 years, you know. It's just, uh, the Olympic Games or something like that yeah. becomes becomes a, a big mode of capital accumulation. Vast amounts of money goes into rebuilding the infrastructures and doing all the things that the construction interest wants to do. Yeah. Then the Olympic Games are 10 days. It's all gone. Where's yeah the, where's the next game we've got the,
0: that running track around uh, our pitch, pitch <laughs> <the rooms? laughs>
1: and 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 and, and uh, how many how many uh biennales are there now and every city has a exhibition, biennale exhibition a cultural you know like venice uh, exhibition or the shanghai exhibition and the and and so and so you suddenly find the, the whole kind of cultural realm is being used as a as a sort of commodification real estate development kind of uh, a scam yes so
0: it's like, okay, I see, it's like that there's a, a matrix of commodification that's applied to everything and you can see its prints, fingerprints, if it would have anything as organic as fingers on, on everything. Yes. Like, football being a great example. Yes. How, like, you know, if you listen to Talk Sport, which is obviously, I think, now owned by sort of Sky and stuff, it's the sort of delicious, cruel irony of, like, what everyone is talking about all the time is, oh, it's just old games about bloody money. It's all games about money. And, like, the way that sort of, like, the way that football looks now, and, of course, the amount players earn, but, I mean, that's one of the few ways a working-class person has a chance of earning any money is to become a, a world-class footballer. But So that's, that's not my point. But my point is that somehow the essence of the game is surviving this process of commodification, how the experience is being turned into a product, how even it, its roots in community, its tribal roots, its roots uh, as a congregational activity, a, a space right. for union and togetherness. Right. It's a layer after layer of commerce wrapped around it. The players appearing in the adverts, the adverts yeah. on the shirts, You know how long before the pitch has adverts on it, how long, you know, like sort of it's... it's creeping through our consciousness it's everywhere and one of the things i think as well is i, I feel like growing up when i did i commodify people i think i wh- i have to un- co- i have to consciously unstitch my tendency to look at people and think well what are you going to do for me what are you right, going to give me right, something right, can i have right. sex with you right. i'm not thinking of this now david <laughs> i've changed i'm married now like i try not to look at people as commodities right. that's one of the things one of the flaws you know you talk about on one hand the alienation that people understand yeah. oh no i'm absolutely Expendable. My role is meaningless. I am only a piece of this machinery, an organic piece of matter in a machine. But the other side of that is that we start to look at each other as commodities, that we lose the the lens of humanity.
1: Yeah, if you said to me, you know, what's the central kind of politics I'd like to see, I'd say I want a politics of decommodification. That is, what's happened over the last 30, 40 years, education has become more and more of a commodity it should stop being a commodity it should be a free good to everybody healthcare is now is a commodity it should be a free good to everybody in other words we should start to decommodify whole sectors of the economy now that's that's socialism that's not communism that's socialism mm-hmm. that's that, that's a socialist pro- project and you're right we should also stop de- you know start decommodifying others so that we start to look at others as people instead of instruments of our own you know Uh, our own activities and and, and trying to exploit uh, Because if
0: our economic ideology requires that it does things as sort of biological and psychological as stimulate limitless need and desire in order to perpetuate itself then it has also colonised the consciousness and the lives of the individuals beyond their economic role because it requires their spiritual role be beholden to its ideology also
1: no, and I think the decolonisation and and the decommodification (laughs) uh, those are the kinds of general factors fields of endeavour, which we can start to do things on right now. How do we do it? Well, you know, we can even get the Labour Party to start to go really strongly. I mean, abolish student debt, for Mm. example. There was talk of this. There's talk of it, yeah. Well, stop having talk about it, do Do it. Do that. You know, do the same with, uh, you know, make sure that uh, there's enough money goes into healthcare so that it's really uh, a non-commodified sector and you get rid of the secondary kind of privatised thing, which the get conservatives... Get that. Yeah. Get, get, so the conservatives, you know, want to use that as a way of sort of chewing away at the National Health Service so that you don't, uh, you know. So there's a, there, 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 are, there are real politics uh, that can have short, even in the short term, or you can imagine sort of a radical uh, beginning. And, and if people start to think... In terms of decommodification, just over something like education or healthcare, and you can extend it a bit more to housing, and then actually to basic uh, food, uh, which which you know the Cubans did, by the way. Oh yes, with a ration book, and their ration book gave you a certain basic amount of rice and so on. And it's not working too well right now, but but it's, it was a basic, you know, food kind of uh, allocation that everybody had. So do things like this and 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 uh, and we could do it. You know when like the
0: people come out of a cult like Scientology or you know uh, another right. cult, they have to sit them down with someone who goes, "All that stuff you've been wired up with, it's not true." They come back to your mum and dad or <laughs> yeah. whatever it is. Now, how are we going to unstitch the conditioning, generation generation deep? I when I like sometimes just to make myself feel better, really go and talk to young people and like you know give them bend their ears about my views. One of the things that's very uh, difficult for me. Uh, as someone, you know, I'm in my 40s now and I try to feel like I'm a person that has access to the young and I feel like I can affect people is to recognise how, like, they are indoctrinated. Yeah. Like, they want right. the phone. Don't tell right. them that they don't want the right. phone because they want it, you yeah. know. Right. How much you earn? They th- so they think about money. Right. And why would they not? Right. How could they not? How do we begin to? Because, see, this thing you said, the thing you like most about Marxist analysis is that it's veracity and its ability to deconstruct, critique and right. reveal essence, epiphany, the revelation of essence the revelation right. of real truth right. how are we going to wade through the layers of inculcation
1: that lacquers their minds I think you start at various in various ways I mean I think Marx's answer to this is first off you should start to try to identify certain kind of practices which are very simple practices uh, over things like you know using people in instrumental ways instead of relating to them as human beings you know that, that these 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 changes can, you know, so the realm of practices is very important, and that can be all over the place. The second thing is to start to actually have uh, a a political movement which kind of says, you know, we don't have to actually create human beings of the sort that we're creating right now with a kind of neoliberal ethic and all of that, and and we, we can do things rather differently and get people to read, I mean, you mentioned Gandhi. People sometimes read Gandhi and get really transformed by it in terms of starting to think about the world in a different kind of way. And so there's an educational process which then gets embedded in a political movement. And I think that is then starts to be important. And uh, that political movement can start to have effects by or- orchestrating new forms of governance and democracy and the like. Mm. For instance, if you look at what's going on in Barcelona, you've got a radical mayor, and she's trying to set up uh, kind of uh, new forms of democratic a consultation within the city. Is it working there? It's I know that like Spain's be, been in just, crisis, hasn't it? Yes, it's only just started, uh, they only just started working on this, but this is one of the, the projects they have. So, but that but that project comes out of a bunch of people who started to develop small practices on the ground, who got together and kind of said, look, we need to do something radically different. I mean, the mayor comes out of the anti-foreclosure movement. She's she very, very progressive, and she's got a bit of a progressive alliance behind her. And so new things can be be set up. And it's, it's very interesting to me, you know. I'm interested in urban. There's a lot of radical mayors around the world. I mean, even places like Seattle and Los Angeles have radical councils now, who are starting to do things at a very different level, just at the local level. And I, this is the way in which it, it, this, you know, a, a political movement can't be taught from the top down. It's got to organ, get sort of. It's got to develop organically somehow. Rather, I agree with in you. People's daily
0: lives. Do you not think that that means, to a degree, then that power has to be closer to people no. and that? Yes. And then the so the idea of state power, even if apparently benevolent, is always gonna seem somehow abstract. Yes.
1: And, And and then you then then you know, to me it's more a dialectical kind of relationship between some sort of centralized state power. So somebody like who's a mayor of a city has a certain kind of centralized power, but uh, rests very much upon, you know, local neighborhood movements, then what happens is those movements try to do certain things and they get support. They need crucial support from what the mayor can do. So if you want to develop a new housing complex, which is a non commodity housing development of affordable housing, mm-hmm. you probably need the city to help you acquire the land. And and if the city helps you acquire the land, then the city is doing its job. So there's a, 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 a relationship of certain kind.
0: Do you think then that what you're saying, is it curious, do you think, David, that this uh, sort of forms of more localised or at least citywide government? For, for me, I would take with my particular code that that's an indication that what's required is, is decentralised, more decentralised power, and perhaps this is the end of the nation state. I mean, when you sort of look at what's happening in America and in certain strands of British politics, that, that like, can you see perhaps that within the, the Brexit impulse, sort of a, a certain positivity in that people want to unpick themselves. I know there's many reasons for Brexit or whatever, but on some level it's a kind of decentralisation. Yes. Power being closer to people, people having a degree of authority in their own lives. Yeah, see.
1: but I don't believe in decentralisation as, as an absolute. I mean, because uh, actually it turns out that one of the best ways you can Orchestrate centralized control is through decentralisation. Huh. When you think about it, and the market is a very decentralised system, Ooh. and of course it's it's uh, it's uh, it's actually compatible with incredible concentrations of political and economic power. So, it's so I don't think decentralisation in itself is the answer. I think that some level of decent, uh, in a situation where there's not any decentralisation, we go for decentralisation. It's centralised
0: by its ideology, though, isn't it? It has such a clear mandate. Yeah. It's such a simplistic I... mandate: extract profit, extract profit. Like you know that that, that itself is m- m- prettier geographical. It's be, like it can't be contained. You can't. You, and and I suppose any attempts to regulate it at a national level or local level are always resisted. Now, another thing is, say, like, for a moment when you said there, like, that if we had a political party that was, like, you know, overtly committed to, you know, sort of, uh, like, you know, some of the basics, um, how do you think in government government, such a a, a nation and such an ideology would survive, like, after what happened in Greece and Syriza and all that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, again that's one of the big uh, issues. You get these very progressive movements and they get political power and then they find political power is constrained in certain ways and the finances are such that they have to do things so they become just like, you know, everybody else. And we've mm-hmm. seen that, you know, with the history of the Labour Party when it came into power, it started to be very much more, you know, pro-capitalist. So yes. I I so I th- I think uh, at that point the the whole kind of revolutionary impulse has to be taken uh, more more seriously, and to say, uh, a, a, par- a reformist party uh, should look f- to create what I would call revolutionary reforms. Now those those reforms which open the pathway towards further reform. You know, would those reforms
0: be? What would you prioritize? The establishment of like benevolent state institutions around health and education. I can see how important that is, but is it? Not equally important, given what we've discussed, that to have powerful draconian regulation of... Enterprise.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not in. I, I'm not against uh, re- regulating what uh, the capitalist class is doing. Uh, I'm very much in favour of. What does that sound like? Well, it it, it sounds like, uh, for example, that uh, you put strict rules on pollution and uh, you put strict rules on things like uh, occupational safety and health conditions in in factories and and the like. So strict, regulation, strict of, regulation around their behaviour, yeah. so that. And, and actually, around those, pay? those hmm?
0: around pay as well. Uh,
1: well, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I would like to see a. Uh, I mean, wouldn't what, what kind of world would it be if uh, actually something like the Mondragon uh, principle, which what was, which started out, well, it's a big cooperative that became bigger and bigger and bigger, originated in Spain, and the rule was that the salary differential should be no more than one to three. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Now, recently it's gone to one to nine, so you <laughs> see the kind of pressures on it, but one to three. Imagine if all corporations had to work under the under the rule that uh, the, the rate of return to people in the corporation should uh, not be more than one to three. Right now, big corporation heads get something like 300 or 400 times what the average they're going to hate that idea. Of course, they're right. going to hate because that they're idea. Have, but, they're earning millions? Wait, but you, hold on. <laughs> but you legislate it, and so kind of say, okay, here's the here's the situation. Yes. And we will be we'll be living in a radically different world if, if 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 hey you know. And right now it's scandalous. I mean, you have this scandal also going on here about you know how much uh, the heads of uh, universities are paid. Oh, is there a scandal? Yeah, they're earning a lot, are they? They're earning huge amounts. Yeah. Mate, and, and, and the same, at the same time, the same time they're cutting, cutting back on, on on number of faculty they hire, you know, because, oh you
0: know... It's very uh, seductive, isn't it?
1: Yeah. It's, it's very seductive. A,
0: Everyone gets lured in.
1: Yeah, yeah, become a become a...
0: I've pres- been lured right in. <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult not to get lured in. Yep. Like, you sort of, like, you know, like, I knew it was wrong prior to having money, and I knew also that it wouldn't work as well. And then when you sort of get it, the comfort, you see... The seduction no, I, of comfort.
1: I, I yeah. The I illusion some, of, I of, of it. I, won't, I, I confess I have some of that too. Do you? And that's yeah. why I
0: thank you very much. That's why That's the, 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 there's a component to this I always harp on about, where the, the, the only way to engender real change, deep change, is not through, I don't think is through analysis and critique, because I think people sort of know. I think they know. But, like, for them to understand that change is possible, I think you have to make people feel differently. Yeah. And like, you know, there's sort of the antithesis of the alienation that you just yeah. described.
1: No, there's a moment in any kind of revolutionary process where, where, yeah, you're right. If people don't feel differently, then it's gone.
0: Yes. So I wonder how, like, I mean, you've mentioned as well, there is the, the possibility for mass communication. There are some, see, look, I would, One of the things I was trying to do when I like, you know, was more overtly evolved in political conversation is I was trying to find grandstand, flash, obvious, blatant, blunt things that people thought, oh my God, you could do that. Like, and one of the things, you know that group called uh, Ad Busters? Some yeah. sort of, yeah, yeah. They would sort of say things like, kill a corporation. And there's, there's something about it that made me sort of tingle with excitement is that they would say identify a corporation that is not popular Dem- a campaign like sort of almost like when we're campaigning for hospitals or on behalf of unions it sort of it exists within a milieu <laughs> that they know how to manage like i i feel like a targeted campaign that was like our role is we are going to crash collapse undermine dissemble you know apple is a difficult one because we've all got them and they're so bloody right. popular yes. <laughs> we've all got them we're all tacked up in it right um but, like, do you see, like, that there could be, like, that these ideas, is there any potential for that, And like, to introduce these kind of ideas? Like, you know, because it's hard for me to look at Google and Amazon with animosity, you know, like, even though I know, why don't they pay their taxes? Why won't they, you know? you know, because, like, those logos, those brands, those stories, the convenience, the comfort, it's so seductive, David. How do you, like, you know, like, people, like, when I talk to, black cab drivers you know and like you know sort of like yeah bloody hell one of the few ways that working people can have an honest job and then like you know uber so creepingly convenient right what do we do how do you ask people you know like how do you get people to change the way they see the world without some sort of different vehicle into their hearts
1: well you can you can boycott uber or something like that uh that that would be uh, an interesting one in fact uh, they did get boycotted in new york city it was very interesting yeah uh, it was a day when uh, Trump declared that no Muslims were allowed from those countries and everybody was rushing out to the Kennedy Airport to sort of, you know, lawyers and all this kind of stuff were turning up there. And uh, the, the regular cab drivers uh, went on strike for an hour. So, 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 And I actually arrived in Kennedy Airport when I mean, all this was happening. It was right. impossible to get out because of the, uh, the cab drivers, but Uber broke the strike. And Uber came in, and next day, uh, social media was coming up and says boycott Uber. Next day, Uber lost half its passengers because because mm-hmm. they because they undermined the, the the cab drivers' strike uh, over the immigrant population. And I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> That, yes. that, that that happened so there is there, there are ways uh, to go with this Opportunities and, will arise right. to,
0: to and, illustrate these points and
1: I, and I think sometimes these symbolic things are very important and I am all, all in favor of you know any kind of symbolic action. I mean I think the Occupy movement was a symbolic movement and I think it it actually changed the discourse about inequality. Uh, it, it introduced the concept of the one percent into, yes. into into, into love everybody understand it, and so, well, you know, a lot of people were in the Occupy movement say so it was a terrible, terrible failure, and he said, no, it wasn't a failure. I mean, it did some things which were terribly important. Yeah, too soon to tell, yeah, as they say. Yeah, yeah right.
0: <laughs> may I, like, may I, may I run through like uh, the proper questions, like so okay. that make sure that we've covered everything? Because uh, you're so fascinating. Uh, well, too, no, I'm do. enjoying it too, so Oh know. yeah, yeah. Hello, we're loving it in here. <laughs> right, so, right, so like, Marx's Capital, one of the most important texts of the modern era, changed the destiny of countries, politics, people across the world. What are its key arguments? We better pick that up. I feel like we've covered it a bit, but do you think we've covered that?
1: Yeah, I key think we have covered that. There's about it's about commodification. It's about accumulation of capital, circulation of capital and how it has to grow and technological change and dynamism and all of that. We've We've understood that. that. We've understood that. Do its
0: ideas, the ideas of Das Kapital, continue to resonate today? And if so, what do they still offer?
1: Well, we we talked about that, too, because uh, we said, you know, capital is more prevalent around the world now than it was back then. So in some ways, Marx is more important now because Mm. the terrain on which it operates is much bigger. Covered that socialism, Marxism, communism—definitely done that.
0: Considering the degree to which technological, economic, and industrial change has occurred within the last 150 years, how might Marx's analysis and its application need to be modified? Do you want to do a little
1: bit more of that? I, I, I think that the answer to it is not much. Uh, it's oh, you're pretty, pretty accurate. accurate. It's a, you're off. It's, are it's you? a good. No, uh, the thing is that Marx. Yeah, Marx wrote a lot about what was going on in the 19th century, and that's dated. But he's <laughs> writing about, when he's writing about capital, he's writing about a system which still exists
0: mm-hmm. and
1: which is even more powerful now than it was in his day. So, and, in fact,
0: possibly we can now see how it's see, played out. Yes, we go, right. bloody hell, he said that was
1: going to happen. Now, there are some aspects uh, that, that Marx never got around to finishing doing on, for example, finance and the role of finance, where he wrote, he wrote some very fascinating stuff, but he never completed it. But we need to do that right now because the financial question is... A much bigger question now than it was in his day yes
0: thank you Your work is said to be appreciated by anarchists and the the Occupy movement as much as it is by Leninist party organisers. Why do you think this is?
1: I have no idea and you should ask them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well done for not being vain. You shouldn't have put that question in there, Gail. That makes us look sycophantic. (laughs) I'm going to cross that out. (laughs) Right, leave it in the show. It makes us
1: look uh, authentic.
0: How has your anthropological and geographical background informed your teaching of Marx? That's really good.
1: Yeah. I want to know that, actually. Actually, it's... it's, uh, I mean... I have a I have a rather different take on Marx to a lot of people and the reason is that I'm, I'm not primarily interested in Marx I'm primarily interested in urbanization. Uneven geographical development at world scale, local scale, and things of that kind. Mm. And I, and I, the only thing I like about Marx is it helps me understand all of that. Now, when there's something in Marx that doesn't help me understand all of that, I kind of push it to one side and say, "Kind of, I think this is probably a useless bit of Marx." Yeah, so I'm very, much, I'm very much about. I'm very much about Marx uh, as, as as a practical guide rather than as a grand theoretician who's a pure theory person so i uh that's
0: because you come from different disciplines in anthropology and geography yeah
1: right and thank god i'm not an economist
0: yeah that stuff's boring isn't it and it's made up and it's not a science and it's all just pretend now uh what about um i like that breakfast thing that we were doing like that you say where'd your breakfast come from it's good isn't it like because you sort of don't you think oh no these beans so it's probably been through hell and like that egg, oh no, it's all sorts has gone on. Yeah. Put you off it.
1: Never yeah. mind a cocoa pop. Where does sugar come from?
0: Yeah. Tate and Lyle, that couple of rab scallions. <laughs> wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. They've still got the whip marks in their hands. So it's been, it's been said we are entering a post-capitalist era. Do we still live in a capitalist society? I can answer that one just after. Of course we do. It's got worse than ever. Oh, it's something that's yes. worse than capitalism, maybe. Right, yeah, could say right, Some sort right, of yeah.
1: terrible, terrible behemoth. Yeah. Some cyborg, yeah. some horrible monster. It's always pretty horrible monster, so it's uh, it's it, it's a monster that has some good effects sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Beyonce, iPhones. I don't know, like the yeah. good
0: it's not blaming Beyonce. Will the current system ultimately prove to be fatal to
1: us? St- I wish it, i could say yes, but the trouble is the capital can continue under the most dire conditions if people don't change it. And I, that's the point, that people have got to change it. It's it, ain't an change, it ain't gonna change it ain't gonna change it of its own accord. Right, it uh, to change.
0: What are some of the main contradictions at the Heart of Capitalism? We really covered that with the growth and the dynamism, Gareth. I can't believe that because Gareth does He does all. He's the producer. Yeah, well, he's been reading it very hard. (laughs) Could you ever love me? Gareth, where are you going with (laughs) this? What about the argument that says capitalism's contradictions lead to the innovations that made it resilient? That's good. Where would you get that from?
1: Yeah, well, you know, look, there's a lot of invention going on under capitalism and it's very use- some of it's very useful. I mean, what would we do without Velcro and things like that, you know? I mean, Velcro? Like, <laughs> that's your example. Well, you know, it's <laughs> trivial things like that. But on the other hand, if you're struggling and you've got a, a, a broken arm and you need to fix it up and you've got Velcro, boy, is it good.
0: Oh, that's the most I've wanted to cuddle you in this entire interview. <laughs> you write about how cities are the heart of both capital and class struggles. How might cities be reorganised in more socially just and economic? Same ways.
1: Well, that's one of the big projects, I think, that we've got to have, is how to redesign cities so that they're much more uh, available to the population, where they counter the alienations which currently exist about mm. uh, urban life. And uh, actually, it's interesting, if you look at it, over the last 30 years, most of the big movements uh, going around the world have been urban movements, like Gezi Park, about what happened in, in Brazil uh, in, in uh, 2013. Uh, you know, so and, and even occupy was a, much, a lot of it was about housing and urban questions, and and not about what's going on in the factory.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what that
1: means. It means that actually, that people are as concerned about the qualities of urban life as they are about the qualities of uh, their employment. Yes. they've always they've always been involved in both. But one of the things that Marx was a bit of bias towards is he. Bias towards production, yes. and not necessarily because to, of the time he was writing, yeah, probably. Yeah, eh? yeah, so so I I would always want to correct that a bit in Marx. Also, perhaps because
0: now the, the kind of economies in which these movements are occurring, there is no longer sort of mass production in the manner in which there was when Marx was writing. Now people yeah. working more diverse.
1: Well, you know, in 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 many parts of the world, uh, the, the the working class in the sense of factory labourer has, has disappeared as as being central. Of course, not in China or Bangladesh and so on, but. Uh, in North America, yeah, the yeah. traditional working class has been much diminished.
0: Yeah, he said. What did he say? Paul Gilbert. Was it Paul Gilbert? He said, uh, "Lanyard, the sort of the lanyard class." Right. He talked about it as the new sort of working class. That was sort of an interesting thing we heard when we were doing the interviews. Sales of Das Capital, Capital, as we now call it, crossing out that D and making that kicking cur a curly ker, Have soared since the 2008 crash. Is Marxism on the rise?
1: I think there's a much greater interest in it. And I think uh, it, the, the nadir was in the 1990s when it was very hard to get anybody to ever look at Marx's capital. But I think uh, since 2000, it's it's gradually become important and then the crisis of 2007, 2008, yeah.
0: Here's some of these uh, big arguments against communism. In the 20th century, it's been directly responsible for killing 100 million people, did it?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of things that can be, you know, very negative yeah. things, you know. Like or religion Stalin that and that uh, Stalin and, of course, Mao made a, a huge mistake, uh, which led to the Great Famine in China, where about 20 million people died. Mao, focus! But, you know, but, but on the other hand, it also saved a lot of lives. I mean, the interesting thing, about even about the China case, and people get mad at me when I say this, yeah, okay, 20 million people probably died in the famine, which was unnecessary, bad policies and all that. It. On the other hand, when Mao came to power, life expectancy in China was 35, and when he died, no life expectancy to see was 65. So he did something right as well. as Yes,
0: I see. On. You feel like it's your personal role to redress much of the propagandised information yeah, that's yeah, taken yeah. as and, fact.
1: And then the problem with the propaganda is it, it, it emphasises all the negatives, and it never says anything about what the positives were. And of we course, need new,
0: as, more balanced propaganda. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> on right. the other hand... <laughs> yeah. no, you're, 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 uh, I understand. One, can Capitalist economies are based on free exchange. This is a popular claim of capitalism. Is that true? Is it made up?
1: Well, in principle it is, but in practice, uh, a lot of it is monopoly power. Monopoly power, plus even people's right. the, the role of the right. consumer. They've been stimulated
0: into a terrible state right. of desperation. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we've covered... I think this is a, that's such a thorough interview I've done. Now, can I just before... I mean, not that we let you go, you'll continued to be free. But my mate John Rogers sent me this thing. Check out this and see if it makes sense. A number of people in Haringey have formed a company with the aim of buying a large bit of land that will otherwise be sold to a private developer. They will want to build loads of expensive housing in a part of Haringey, Tottenham, where local people can't afford them, thus gentrifying the area and kicking out local people. What we want to do is build 800 homes that are all genuinely affordable for local people and the site controlled by local people. Oh, hello. I could go on, he says, but if you need more info, you can go to... Uh, the website startharringay.co.uk we're actually serious about this that's a funny paragraph to put this late in uh and we've got we've got solicitors architects we've been speaking to the mayor blah 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 we need to pry, pile on pressure and publicity so what do you think about a project like that where essentially i suppose their project is to have sort of a, 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 a to to acquire some land, to build 800 homes and sort of govern them. So, again, it's going to be operating within, like, a metropolis that's got other systems of government at its heart.
1: Um, I, you know, I'd like to know more details right, about Right, you it. don't just make snap judgments <laughs> like a problem, I mean, I, like an agony I, uncle. In, in a sense, uncle. I, <laughs> I, 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 I would support this kind of thing. I mean, in, in the States, we have something called community land trust, which, take, which means that people who are in those houses can't sell them. Mm. So I don't know whether that's in that proposal, whether people... I bet it is, yeah, they can't turn a quick profit on there. So, so, uh, you know, if if people come in and they live there, then if they leave, then they just get back what they put in and there's no kind of speculation on the land. So Mm. anything of that sort, I'm in favour of.
0: Yeah, people where people have authority and power in their own lives right, right. and the right. ability to govern themselves yeah, where yeah. possible. But, yeah, but if
1: they but uh, you sometimes find in those things where people look at the situation and say, well, under the rules of the game, I can't sell. And but if I could sell, I could make megabucks. So therefore, the individuals try to then turn those collective things into things where they can speculate and come out. I mean, it's so... curious,
0: isn't it? Because in a way, capitalism, like most superficial and observable phenomena, are somehow sourced from.
1: The, our inner lives fear greed well it's partly that but then you know if if somebody's living there and they see that if they could make this back, turn this back into a market proposition they could make a lot of money out of it then uh, you know and they, they've got pressing needs you know medical needs or something like that or they you know then then they, they want to go market yes 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 I see so, so it's not it's not just greed and, 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 and ideology and so on people have real kind of needs I
0: suppose that's why you uh, are insistent on there being some kind of state role so that there is some sort of overarching principle so that well, people Well, they have to have protecting. a legal
1: apparatus there that prevents them selling out at a market rate.
0: That's some free advice from David Harvey that you've got there from your email. That was someone called Tony Wood, who's a friend of my mate John Rogers. Uh, and finally, what five books have we got to read, oh, please? Oh, that's a terrible... Well, you won't ter- do it?
1: Ter- terrible ter- well, well I, can, I can do it, Um, but... You know, you should get into reading this stuff from any, all kinds of different perspectives. Uh, and, and the sorts of things I would sort of say is, uh, you you know, if you read uh, C.L.R. James on uh, uh, black jacobins, uh, you know, this, I mean, this is a kind of... What, does that mean? Uh, what is that? C.L.R. James it's an on understanding, black jacobins. It's an understanding of Marx that comes from, from the colonial experience, Ooh. put it that way. And, and so anybody who's coming from that background, I think, would immediately get sucked into sort of appreciating the Marxist standpoint from that experience. I'd say the same thing about somebody, somebody like Silvia Federici, who has a book on Caliban and the Witch and, and another a more recent one called Point Zero, which is about the experience of women in the whole history of capital accumulation from the very origins to, to today? Again, you know, people w- w- would get into that and they would get a per- certain perspective on the Marxist position, which would come from, from that. And then I had, you know, for, from a humanist position, I'd say, uh, read Terry Eagleton's book on uh, why Marx was right. Uh, where Marx, where he actually goes over the whole history of, uh, of 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 Marx's humanist positions that he took and and why he was right and and corrects a lot of the bad propaganda that mm. you've talked about. And F- then F- I pay me th- for it. <laughs> then I then I'd say then I'd say actually I'm going to give you a couple of mine. I think yeah. you should you should take uh, this last one, which is uh, uh, you know Marx Capital and the Madness of Economic Reason. Uh, but then I would uh, precede it by reading The Brief History of Neoliberalism, which is about the history of capital accumulation from the 1970s onwards. But it got up to about 2005, so it was before the crisis, whereas the the new book has a, a final chapter which updates the, the neoliberalism book and what's happened to neoliberalism since 2005. So I would say... You know, you would get into get into things that way. So, it's going I, to be a
0: right a, expedition of learning. I'm going to start with yours, Professor. Thank you so right. much for coming on Thank here. Thank you for having me. This has been brilliant. great. We have I. Hmm? Did you say I've been great or it's been yes, great? Yes, you've been great. All oh, right, brilliant. Thanks, yeah, Thanks. Right, right. Hey, you, why don't we go out on you reading this monologue from Shakespeare that you've um, concluded? That's right, out, out of King John. How come you saw King John?
1: I saw King John because a friend of mine took me there to listen to it, and it's not a great play, but on the other hand, there's this great speech in the middle of it. It goes like this Mad world, mad kings, mad composition. That smooth faced gentleman, tickling commodity. Commodity, the bias of the world, the world who of itself is pated well, made to run even upon even ground, till this advantage, this vile drawing bias, this sway of motion, this commodity, makes it take heed from all indifferency, from all direction, purpose, course, intent. And this same bias, this commodity, this board, this broker, this all-changing word, and why rail I on this commodity? But for because he hath not wooed me yet, Not that I have the power to clutch my hand when his fair angels would salute my palm. But for my hand is unattempted yet, like a poor beggar, raileth on the rich. Mm. Well, whilst I'm a beggar, I will rail and say, here is no sin but to be rich. And being rich, my virtue then shall be to say there is no vice but beggary. Since kings break faith upon commodity, gain be my lord, for I will worship thee. Yes! It's a great quote. And, of course, the first line of Marx's capital is... Don't look to me for that. You're the oh, bloody you're professor. you're supposed to know it now. You're supposed to know it. You're supposed to know it. <laughs> Finally, the first line is that the wealth of the world in which we're looking at here appears in a great accumulation of commodities.
0: All right. Shakespeare, Karl Marx, Professor David Harvey. Thank you very much for joining us on Under the Skin. It's been a, a great component and a wonderful education. Thank well, you. For me, too. Thank you. Right, cheers. Thanks, mate. That show was sponsored by my new book, Recovery, which is available. What do you mean you've not gone out and bought it while David Harvey was doing that? Go and get it right now. But what about capital? Never mind capitalism. Get to a shop. Amazon. Buy it right on Amazon if you must. Oh, but everything we've learned. I don't care what you've learned i simply want you to go and get that book russellbrown.com also if you like this show subscribe to it review it with five star reviews only remember how fragile i am and tell other people that they must subscribe to it too thank you now go back to your bloody life